Great start here. Can Clint Dempsey score? Yes! The ahead! Oh, he's trying to find him. It's broken for Fabregas. Now it's Iniesta. This is it! Again! Hello. If you like Oleg Solenko, Roger Mia, Alexi Laz and Diana Ross, you're in the right place. This is Wendy Ball Fives and this week we're revisiting the most attended World Cup ever. I'm Chris Nee and I'm going to introduce my colleagues by revealing the UK number one single on their birthdays in 1994. Um, first and indeed second up, Ryan Keeney and Dan who's not here, you must know yours. Uh, I was nine so I don't think I would remember it. It's very much a nine-year-old song. It was uh, Saturday Night by Wigfield. Oh, nice. Tune. Yeah. That, is, that is a big tune. Yeah. Dan avoided Lovers All Around by Mere Days. <laughs> That's fortunate. Um, and we've got David Hartrick here as well, who I'm fairly sure is going to try and tell me that Take That's Everything Changes is a tune. It is a tune. I don't know what you're on about. you were going to say that. Decent video as well. You're so wrong, Dave. So wrong on that. We're a, it's um, almost like we're a thousand miles apart, Chris. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and with that, we skirt past Baby Comeback by Pato Banton and get stuck into World Cup USA 94. Um Dave, I'm coming to you for question one, because we begin with the usual assessment of England's tournament. Uh, Pretty quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Listen, not qualifying for this tournament was was a shocker. We should have got out of that group, but I think it's worth making a couple of caveats. One, we were in a group with a Holland side who were absolutely excellent um and who went out of the subsequent world cup to the winners um so you can make a point that we shouldn't have finished ahead of them but two qualified and holland didn't even top the group it was norway and it was actually it was it was a good norway side certainly Mm. in qualifying and the the real signal really was the game at wembley against norway where we drew 1-1 um Played very badly. David Platt got us into the game at 1-0 on, on about the hour. And then a little bit of a worldie from uh, Norway. A great goal, actually, where with about 10 minutes to go. And we dropped the points there. But we just, we just, we were, it was a good side, but we were in transition. We had players like Carlton Palmer <laughs> yeah, rampaging through our midfield. But we should. I can make caveats for it, but we should have got through that group. And there were, there were times where England actually played quite well. But it was this weird, this weird thing with Graham Taylor's England, as I'm sure Chris is going to have a chat about, where we either played really, really well, or we played absolutely desperately, and there never seemed to be that in-between performance where you managed to grind out a win. Uh, when you're playing badly, and that is ultimately what cost us here. And 
Gazza played some really good football in this qualifying campaign, scored some very important goals. David Platt was was instrumental. Our striking options were sensational when you consider our striking options today. But we we fell short. We fell short because we we made stupid mistakes. But we were also robbed. As uh, mm-hmm. Chris will will co- I'll let you cover that one, Chris. We were also on, robbed. You? Uh, over in the Netherlands, who knows how that game would have gone? Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a strange campaign, really. It was a strange campaign because you know we outscored the team that topped the group. It, it was just it was an odd time to be an England fan, and I think what really killed us, Chris, or my theory about what killed qualifying for USA '94 was actually Euro '92 because. Mm. They were so bereft of confidence after that that tournament. And I remember this time watching England, and we were just scared, weren't we? Every game we went into, the the players were just scared. Yeah, um, I think, you know, not that far away from that point in time was the spring of 93, when we played Poland and and Norway away in the space of four days. And I think as much as we talk about uh, Netherlands away and San Marino away. It was those two games for mm. me that that really did for us. It was th- those were the ones where you can separate yourselves from Poland um, and and not Norway off the top of the group, uh, and we singularly failed to do so. Uh, we we should briefly come on to the Netherlands game, but I've, a question for you, Dave. Um, as I I sort of recall goals and goalkeeping errors more readily at that age than than actual kind of flows of games and such but the the away game in Norway mm. has since become pretty widely held up as an example of a um, an attempt by Graham Taylor to match Norway tactically yeah and really shooting himself in the foot was that sort of evident at the time did you feel that at the time yeah it, it... Those just, uh, the Poland game really knocked us off course, didn't it? And and then we we overcompensated. Yeah, and I, I mean again, this was a good Norway side. I mean it it was like it was the Norway of Lars Bohinen and Ivan Leonards and Tore Andre Flo as well, I think, and various mm. others. It wasn't. It wasn't like we were up against a bad side and we should have walked it. Uh, Gunnar Haller as well, I think a couple of others. But that Norway game was, as I said, very typical of what I was saying before, that it was either dreadful or really, really good. And I remember watching that game and five minutes in knowing, even as, I mean, what would I have been at the time? Probably 14, 15 and knowing exactly how that was going to go, and it was just it was just a matter of time until we conceded. And I think, uh, if memory serves, did they get two goals not long after half time, or one like before, that. one after? And it was we just offered nothing. And Graham Taylor was in one of those situations where he was in a hiding to nothing because he was being cascaded in the press. And had for not trying something, so he tried something. It didn't come off, so he then got <laughs> absolutely pilloried for <laughs> for trying something. It was. And of course, it was, we've seen all that pillorying as well. Yeah, I mean this this is this is banging the in uh, Bobby Robson had endured a, 
a terrible time. Um, but this, unfortunately, was was bang in the sort of tabloid war when bashing the England managers was still a, a way to shift papers. And Graham Taylor really bore the brunt of it. But at times it was justified. I, I mean, with Bobby Robson, there were people who were involved in that sort of press coverage at the time will tell you it was very much a manufactured thing. Um, but Taylor took, I mean, he took dogs abuse, um, win, lose or draw. He was just, I, I always feel so, uh, pretty sorry for Graham Taylor and his, his time in charge of England. But I, I also think he didn't help himself at times. But yeah, that, that Norway away performance was probably symptomatic of our entire campaign. And I mean, particularly when, if again, if memory serves, our next qualifying game I think was the home game against Poland possibly where we played absolutely brilliant and played them off the park and I think it I think it finished 2-0 3-0 something like that and it actually should have been 5 or 6-0 and it was yeah it was a, it was a difficult time to be an England fan in truth it was it was our, our deficiencies were so uh, vast and our, the talent gaps in our squad between our best player and our worst player was vast and absolute chasm. And I've I've spoke about that on, on this podcast before. It's never a good thing for your squad or first team when the talent gap is that wide. Um, it's, it's, it was a difficult time to support England on the basis that we've become very bad now act generating drama from qualifying this was just non-stop mm. it felt like there were twists and turns at every single juncture um the, the conclusion of it all on top of the two games against uh, against norway and the home game against the netherlands which was a, a decent match in its own right it's come up in the last couple of weeks on this show um going into the game in the netherlands and uh, frankly being mugged and then conceding that first goal against San Marino in the way that we did you just don't get that from qualifying anymore do you? No and I'd love to say I miss it but it was <laughs> it was no good for your blood pressure but the uh, the Netherlands game the home game was yeah we were robbed in the away game and Ryan will be chuckling away as we talk about this you know, over 20 years later and how much it still hurts. But we were robbed in that game, but we massively shot ourselves in the foot in that home game. 2-0 up after half an hour and absolutely cruising. Bergkamp, fair enough, scores an absolute worldie. And I mean, it, it is it, it remains one of, one of the best goals I think ever scored against England. But then second half, we just retreated into our shell and we stopped doing all the things we were good at. And the equaliser, was it was it a penalty, Chris? It was, I think, yeah. I couldn't tell you who scored it, but it was a penalty. And it was it, the sense of inevitability about that equaliser was just immense. So we put ourselves in the situation for the away game. And, you know, we played we played very well for long spells in that game. But... Over the course of the campaign, we didn't really deserve the luck. You can't argue that. Uh, but yeah, we was robbed. <laughs> yeah, we were. And we will never forgive Ronald Koeman for it. Um, it. It was a little sad not having England there. 
but it's also the first World Cup I remember properly, so it didn't feel strange as such. And and you know, through blood, I was able to half adopt Ireland, um, which brings <laughs> us on to Mr. Ryan Keeney. Um, right. Hello, uh, let's let's bring Ireland in here. Republic yeah. in this case. Yeah. Um, uh, a decent showing had its moments. We'll put it that way. Yeah, it it, it kind of it, well at the tournament it started off incredibly well, um, and I think that kind of got everybody giddy um, and and kind of sucker punching. Call it sucker punching. Yeah, kind of smash and grab um, against Italy to kind of begin things. Really, kind of it. It was great at the time um, and such kind of a whirlwind. I remember. Being, I think I've talked about it before in this podcast, but it was in Dublin at the time with my family, and it was just the the most amazing kind of evening and and everything that went with it because it was late at night and I'm glad to stay up. It was made all the more magical. Um, but I think some of that then went on to contribute towards Ireland's kind of plucky, uh, nice to be here attitude that they then seem to have at, at other tournaments that, that kind of drive, drives me a bit insane and, and drove Roy Keane's in around South Korea, Japan that. They were just kind of a, a bunch of lads uh, who happened to be playing a football tournament, but you know, mostly there for, for the pints. That kind of a, an attitude, which was entirely wrong, because they were probably a slightly better footballing team than that. But that again does disservice to what was a, a really fun campaign, and, and saw them losing to the Netherlands in the last sixteen. Who, as, as Dave mentioned, went out to the eventual winners and, and were a pretty tidy team all the same. Um, the qualifying, I don't know if you guys were kind of over it, but it was quite peculiar mm. for the islands because they were drawn with Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of... So it was obviously at the height of the Troubles and it was my first uh, experience as a youngster with the kind of tension of it. And I've, I've talked about this before and my wife is kind of always a bit bemused when I talk about the, the checkpoints that we used to go through travelling to Dublin to see my family members and stuff. But it, And, and that, I always took that as part and partial. But then the there were some... Uh, harsh words I think before the final group game so it was Northern Ireland against Republic in Belfast the Republic needed a result basically to qualify I think if they there were lots of permutations around Spain and Denmark in the group um, but the Republic basically needed to win to be sure if they drew then Spain against Denmark had to end in something else and uh, it was just the build up to it like um, Billy Bingham who was the Northern Ireland manager made reference to the Republic being England B basically there was Townsend and Aldridge and, and Ray Houghton who were all in that side and kind of led to some tension and, and there was um, reading back on it at the time there was discussions about moving it to Old Trafford in, in Manchester and basically getting it out of a, a pressure cooker atmosphere um, and it was kind of that one moment where you realised that uh, uh, me as a nine year old that it wasn't you know these things weren't normal um, so to speak and, and things were tense on the pitch as the Republic tried to play for the result they needed, but also tense off it as everybody worried that there may have been a terrorist attack of some sort. Yeah, it's um, it's nice it's, it's nice that that sort of thing has not really had its fingers in British Isles football for a long time. Yeah, um, and it's it's amazing to think how recent it was. You know, in the in the couple of years after this World Cup, um we had Euro 96 and everything that happened around that um, as well as the the, the, the England friendly um, mm-hmm. in Ireland as well yep. so you know this isn't stuff that, that happened anywhere further than recent living memory um, 
so it's it's a plus point I think that that we can have domestic um, domestic Isles games against one another and and be relatively sensible about it these days. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's it was kind of a big thing, and and the two islands were then drawn against each other as well in um, Euro '96 qualifying, um, which helped, and they've not played competitively since. But um, so that was again quite an interesting point. I think in terms of on the pitch, if I can move on without really touching on it, um, the Republic were still they were doing a pretty decent job of transitioning out of the nineteen ninety side. So the side that had got to Italian ninety and um had hung on Jack Charlton had done a pretty decent job of, of bringing through young players or convincing young players that were English who weren't going to get a game to uh switch their allegiance and, and have a crack at a major tournament. But it was I always when you watch the highlights they didn't play a particularly nice style of football, which is a shame because there were some decent players in there. Roy Keane, Andy Townsend, Ray Houghton now Quinn John Aldridge, Steve Staunton is not a bad front six um, in in mm. all sense of Paris. Dennis Irwin was uh, fullback, Terry Field and, and Packy Bonner in in goal was uh, to be relied upon. So it was um, you know very decent. When he got to the tournament, then um, Bonner made an absolute howler in the Netherlands game in the knockouts and, and <sighs> yeah didn't not tarnish his reputation, but he became a bit of the brunt of a joke for a while. Um, and and but up until that point, he had been an incredible seven for Ireland and remained so. Um, it wasn't uh, necessarily ostracised, but it was uh, certainly a, a sense of there was, um, yeah, as I say, quite a lot of jokes about Packet dropping lots of things for <laughs> at least ten years. Remember it. Um, I felt a bit of a connection to it because of the Villa players as well. Um, so we had Paul McGrath on top of the three you've already mentioned, which was mm. Staunton, Houghton, and Townsend. Unfortunately, Ray Houghton grew up to be Ray Houghton after this, so um, it's difficult to hold too much affection for him. But it certainly felt like a, a, a Villa connection at the time. Um, I think there was probably a game against Italy that we'll revisit at some point in this pod. So let's move on to the next question. Um, we'll come to you first on this one, Ryan. Did the right team win? I think so. Um, uh, that Brazil team. Um, mean just a, a lot to me you can go through the, the names and, and stuff in it and uh Dunga Babeto, Romario, uh, Cafu or uh, admittedly Cafu not necessarily at the peak of his powers and, and some of the players in the squad went on to do bigger and better things but that that was very much my first World Cup and, and we talked about it before so I think I was blown away by the colour mm. um one of the, the big things I remember from World Cup 94 is, well, as, well as, as well as staying up late there was a, a shine to things um, mm. and, and the Brazil kit accentuated that so um, while my memories and, and having gone back and looked at it my memories at the time weren't necessarily about the quality of the football but Brazil just seemed to do things with a, a different kind of level of, of finesse and, and purpose to it um, and even though I think that's hard to, to get by, so I'm I'm okay with Brazil winning it. Yeah, they were still exotic as well at that point. It was possible to have not watched them every week for the last four years. Um, yeah, they, and certainly yeah. at the age we were, they were they were new to us as well. There was there was a couple. Uh, I remember I was looking back through the squad, and there was a couple in Serie A, but I don't remember them from even from Football Italia. Um, but there was players who you were told played around Europe and, and played for some of the biggest teams and, and all of that was, was kind of exciting. I don't think uh, I necessarily would have begrudged Italy winning it, uh, mostly because 
for the next kind of five years after that, the logic in Ireland went that because the Republic had beaten Italy 1-0, they were basically the second best team in the world because the only other team to beat Italy were Brazil, ignoring the fact that we lost to Mexico and the Netherlands, <laughs> for example. Um, so, there, yeah, I had, a, I had a bit more kind of knowledge of, of the Italian side from, from Football Italia and, and Baggio obviously being probably the well, almost certainly the best player in the world at the time um, helped that. So I don't necessarily think if the penalty shootout had gone another way, I'd be begrudging Italy having won it, and I'd probably be saying that they were the best team. So yeah, yeah. I I think there was a shine to this World Cup, and it's you know it's partly sunshine, it's partly the reflection of the red off Jackie Charlton's forehead. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of it was to do with with Brazil, and th- of the ones we've done, this is one of the easy ones for me. Uh, to me, Brazil were very much the right team to win this. Uh, they were the only team that didn't lose for a start. They were comfortable through their group. Um, their, their draw in their group came against what was, of course, a very decent Sweden side, um, and, and they were already through at that point. Then they had the game against the USA, which I'll park for now, um, and then they beat the Netherlands, beat Sweden, and then won the, the final on penalties um, after a life-sapping draw. Um, in, in Pasadena and for me the, the, as well as being exciting and, and, and interesting to watch and you know they, they, they weren't they weren't the 82 Brazil side um, but to a nine year old this was yep. watching you know Tafarel who was as good a goalkeeper as Brazil offered in the 90s uh, it was the first introduction to Mauro Silva Marcio Santos Dunga Aldair um and you know, Cafu started to make his name there in, on, on, on a global basis. Leonardo made his name for, for other reasons. Um, and then, of course, you had Bebeto and Romario, who were just absolutely enchanting for a kid of that age. It was wonderful. It was like relearning football all over again. Um, and the comparison you have to make is with, is with the other sides in contention. And you know, if there were some unbeaten team that were knocked out on penalties and, and could justify their place here... Then they might be in the conversation, but Italy lost to Ireland, which you know there's a positive look a spin on that from Ireland's point of view. But the negative is Italy lost the game. Um, Sweden lost to Brazil. Bulgaria, who I think you'd argue were probably the story of the World Cup, they lost to Italy. Um, and and really, that's probably that's probably about it because um, uh, Netherlands, of course, were were on Brazil's hit list as well. So. I not only am I quite happy to say yes to this question, I'd be happy to put out any argument against any other team that that got nominated here because I think it to me it's 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 cut and dried. Dave, um, yeah, yeah, perhaps not as quite cut and dried as you, Chris. I think uh, Netherlands and Germany were both teams of individuals. Morally, Romania should have won, or possibly Bulgaria, but that was never going to happen. Um, <laughs> but I think what is important to say about this Brazil side is that they, and I hate to be boring about this, but they tried something different at this World Cup. They essentially played with two holding midfielders and almost a effect, well, effectively a front four. Uh, with Bebeto and Romario up up top, and then Zeno and I can't remember his name on the other side. And 
if you look at the final of the two, I mean, this of World Cup finals, this this was the pits. I mean, it it was <laughs> God, yeah. it really in terms of games feeling like a lifetime. This this just dragged on and on and on. But this was a pretty rugged Italy in a in a pretty strict four four two, and their game plan was keep things tight, keep things contained, and give it to Baggio to make something happen. And yeah, this this Brazil team they couldn't overcome them in ninety minutes because that Italy side was so compact, so difficult to break down, so difficult to do anything against, and also relatively uninterested in trying to hurt you too much going the other way that uh, yeah I think I think rightfully morally however you look at it yeah you you can say Brazil should have won it but I'm not sure it's quite as cut and dried I mean there were some great players in that Brazil side obviously that it's the front two that stand out an absolute country mile isn't it and when when you're a young boy and they, as Chris rightly said, you couldn't watch them every week, and things were still exotic and exciting. To watch Romario and Babeto play up front, and both playing really well through the tournament, and both scoring goals, felt really special. It it did feel special, and however you cut the mustard, we can look back now and say, well, Baresi and Maldini in the centre of that Italian defence, oh, lovely stuff, but. When you're a young boy watching a World Cup, you're not looking at a central defensive pairing and saying how lovely that is. You, you're only retrospectively enjoying that. So, so yeah, yeah, I, 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 I struggled to see how anybody could really make an argument that Brazil weren't worthy winners, really. Mm. Bulgaria, though. Yeah. That yeah. was quite a, quite a story. And yeah. uh, for me, the big tick in Italy's box is that they were the team to finally overcome that. Mm. Um, because they, even with Brazil there, and and with you know, plenty of years in between then and now, what I remember from this competition is watching Bulgaria. Yeah, yeah. I well, I, yes and no. I feel a bit the same about Romania. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bulgaria were, at, were absolutely brilliant, and uh, I think Ryan is going to talk about them in one of the questions a little bit further on from one of the games. But I'm going to talk about Romania a bit further on, and I would argue they were just as uh, just as good to watch, really. Mm. It's almost like having a low centre of gravity, lovely, portly little playmaker is a, a big <coughs> thing. It's a big tick. Yeah. Yes, isn't it just? Right, moving on to favourite match then, and uh, uh, we'll stick with Brazil, Dave, and we'll go with you for this one. Yeah, well, uh, there are a few... This This game wasn't sort of massively high on thrills and spills um and a lot of games were more memorable because they had like a fantastic half an hour or a really fast opening and i think that's probably symptomatic of just how hot it was <laughs> in some of these games at the time some of these games were played to be to be honest um but i i don't think anybody's mentioning nigeria one italy two are they 
uh, which is is definitely worth a mention. But it's it's the end of that game, really. It's from the 80th minute and then into the extra time when Roberto Baggio takes over and saves Italy, really. Um, and a, a brilliant opening goal in that game. There's also the... I don't think anybody's mentioning the other 3-2, are they, in this tournament? Nope. Uh, right, so it's probably worth touching on the... Um, Germany 3, Belgium 2, but Germany did sort of run away a little bit with that game. And the Romania-Argentina game, Argentina Argentina, Argentina were so so different with Maradona taken out of that side that Romania were absolutely brilliant, but they could have played half as well and still won that game. But it's it's the Netherlands uh, 2-3 game that... That second half, five goals in a in a second half, we'll take that, won't we? We'll take that. Uh, massive crowd at that Cotton Bowl in Dallas. One of the things I'll always remember about that venue is that I don't think it held as many people as uh, as Old Trafford, but it looked about three times as big. It was absolutely cavernous. Um, but yeah, it a sort of a bit of a nothing first half. Um, as I said, these games there was there was rarely a sort of ninety minutes that held you on the edge of your seat, but just came into life in the second half, and it became a really. It wasn't even a massively high quality game either. It was suddenly there were moments of individuals basically taking the game by the scruff of the neck, and you had that Romario scored first for Brazil tick, Bergkamp equalised for the Netherlands, tick Bebeto then put Brazil back in front tick so you know, Vinter gets them back to 2-2 and then Branco scores in, with about 10 minutes to go and it was it was just a seesaw half of football and it's it's World Cup games are one of the reasons we all absolutely loved uh, Brazil 2014 is because it felt like we went back to a little bit of seesaw football. We it felt like it went back to a time when both teams were were going for it and the quality was there to match. Whereas I think we would all argue 2010 was a bit of a stodgy defensive mess, really, most of the time. So, so yeah, it was it was not a massively high quality tournament, but you did have these half an hours and and halves of games which were really really good and that second half was was exceptional. Mm. Stodgy mess you say. Um I'm going for Brazil 1 USA uh <laughs> nil in the second round. Um and it, it it really boils down to one moment because even the goal which um uh, Bebeto scored was just sort of poked into the bottom corner. <laughs> There's nothing particularly mm. special about the goal itself. Um but despite Brazil being Brazil, this was about the USA. And, and we knew nothing about them at the start of this. Um, but they managed to catch the imagination, particularly of, of children, um, because they were so striking. You know, the kits obviously played a part in that. Um, Lalas had become a name we knew from England games by that point um, and, and had a look to match. And we knew Kobe Jones and Roy Wegerly from, from the English league as well. Um but they had no league, which to me at the time was fascinating. And I, I was you know, probably completely unaware that the league was already on its way at that point. Um, so the whole thing about having the World Cup in the States and then seeing these enormous stadiums full of people was just bonkers to me. Um, and, the, and the match itself wasn't a classic. Um, 
but it had such a sense of moment to it. It, it was a, a USA team who'd squeezed through in third place, I think, in their group. Um, yeah. And, and, and had their chance to step up. And, and, and really, they did. You know, they were pretty good against Brazil, all told, um, in, in a game that it wasn't the first proper game of this World Cup. Um, it was, I think, pretty much halfway through the second round games. Um, but it felt at the time like we were starting to get into the serious business here. Um, and aside from the goal, um, and aside from uh, Fernando Clavillo getting sent off um, for a second yellow for the States late in the game, um, there was a huge moment in this match and one that's kind of etched into the memory and is bloody difficult to watch back even now. Um, and that, that was Leonardo's red card for uh, what can only be described as a vicious elbow on Tab Ramos, um, who came away from that game with a small matter of a fractured skull. Um, for the, the the huge crime of pulling Leonardo's arm back a bit. And actually, Leonardo did that to him first anyway. Um so it was a, a real burst of ugliness in a, a, a really colourful World Cup. It was very strange. Um, and I haven't lost the image of it from my mind at any point in the last 24 years. Um, what I hadn't realised until going back to it was a very entertaining Barney between uh, Alexi Lalas and Tafarel in the aftermath of this, which was good fun. Um, but I'm... I'm still not having Leonardo, I'm afraid, after this. No. Well, we, we've... Obviously, if you go back deep, deep into the archives, <laughs> I made uh, Dan and Ryan uh, role-play Kevin Keegan's uh, yeah. commentary <laughs> to this. Yeah. And Kevin Keegan, who was looking to sign Leonardo when the tournament was over, bear in mind, defended him for about... Probably about coming on for three minutes... Uh, saying he couldn't really see what was wrong with it and he didn't think he'd caught him that badly. Until eventually, I forget who the commentator was, but the commentator right uh, stuck to their guns right the way throughout and just said, I don't know what you're on about, Kev. This, I mean, it's <laughs> assault. It's absolute assault. And in the end, <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't laugh about it really, but it's literally at the point where Ramos is being loaded on to a stretcher, clearly in horrendous trouble, in massive pain. Everybody's worried about him. Uh, doctors from both uh, teams are on the pitch looking at him and making sure he's all right. That Keegan finally goes, well, yeah, I suppose it was quite bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kev, never change. Uh, Ryan. Uh, I have gone for Bulgaria 2, Germany 1. Um, Germany were the reigning champions. They'd won the 1990 World Cup. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, but they had been in the previous two World Cup finals before that. But they, they were just, even being Irish and living in Northern Ireland, there was just something about the inevitability of the Germans kind of getting to the final of the World Cup or getting pretty close. So to have Bulgaria, who, again, shouldn't, it shouldn't have been a footballing nation to kind of to to beat them and beat them pretty well uh, with two really really good goals. Uh, Stoichkov's free kick is is marvellous and and Ilgner doesn't even move for it. And then the header from Lechkov who gave away the penalty I think um, to then redeem himself by scoring the winner to take them 
into the semis was just uh, what a goal that is as well by the way yeah. you have undersold that header by yeah uh, i mean yeah sorry i have but it's uh <laughs> but it's just it, it, i think a little part of it is the everybody having an of as a surname at that time is is, is weird and, and you're nine and you think who are these people then you find out it's plays for barcelona and they're not just a pack of uh, chances that have rocked up and they might actually have some quality in there and there was i mean the other players were obviously pretty good as well but Stoichkov was their star and, and scored was golden boot winner I don't know how many scored in the tournament but won the golden boot for it uh, over the whole thing but yeah just to see Germany lose to a side that they weren't supposed to uh, to lose in the quarterfinals when they were supposed to get to at least the semis uh, was just kind of really fascinating to me but yeah Bulgaria were, were good value for it too yeah I've, I've definitely understood that header it was a really really good header from quite far out but um, again keeper doesn't even bother because I don't think he's got a chance for it. Or knows well, it's it. also on the dive. You know, it's a di- it's a diving header from a footballer who, I mean, he looks like Alan Cork's granddad. He, he's he, he just <laughs> he, it's the complete opposite of everything you think a footballer should be, and he yeah, just performs this wonderful dive to get the header there. It's, it's a brilliant goal. Brilliant. Goal. I remember the contrast of looking at Lechkov who. Uh, I think looked a bit like Attilio Lombardo, which isn't a particularly recent uh, reference either, but a very bold man. Um, and then it was Ivanov, I think the centre-half mm. and full-back, who looked like a wolf. Um, yeah, Mick Foley. Like, He's now fa- fa- sadly passed, hasn't he? Has he? Mm, believe oh. so. Um, I'll have to double-check yeah. that. Apologies if you're still alive. but <laughs> Triffin. Um, oh, no, he, he passed away... Uh, a year and seven days ago. Yeah, I I'm thought thinking. so. But yeah, facial hair everywhere and and a mullet. Um, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, just looked terrifying as a centre half. And then you've got the the ball guy in Leshkov and, and Stoichkov who was short, not particularly fit looking, um, but just what a player. Yes. Good, really entertaining team as well. You know, they played yeah. a decent football and caused a few bloody noses along the way. They were yeah. the archetypal um, World Cup romance story, I think, for a lot, lot of that World Cup. Um, I, just before we move on to the next question, the golden ball must have been Romario date for this. Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. It probably yeah. was, and then I think if I remember rightly, Over Mars was the young player of the tournament, and then. Um, obviously, Selenko and, and Storchkov shared the shared the golden boot. So it was a tournament in which the star players showed up uh, in a big, big way. Apart from, well, Diego got his moment as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, gold as well. By the way, if you, like Klinsman scored a few, Batistuta scored a few. Uh, Darlene and Broly that um, he teed himself up for a volley, didn't he? Yeah. Bergkamp scored three. Uh, yeah, it was a tournament where where you know big players did show up, as you said. Hmm. Pep Guardiola scored. Favorite goal. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Dave. I th- I'm sure Pep Guardiola scored in one of the games as well. Though I may be misremembering that. Anyway, uh, favorite goal, uh, Georgie Haji in the game against Colombia. Everybody has seen this goal. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna labour the point. If you are one of the the two percent of the worldwide population who hasn't, 
go and YouTube it immediately. Left wing, he's got he's in a position where you would think for all the world he's going to cross it. Looks up, gets that wonderful left foot in line to uh, essentially. I mean, how would you describe it? He basically sweeps it in, doesn't he? Mm. It's it. I was saying to Chris off air for years in my ignorance as a as a younger man. I was sure this was a cross that went in, and it's not at all because there's no one there to cross. You can see from the way he lines it up, you can see exactly what he's looking to do because he spots where the keeper is, and it's it's just a it's just a a really it's a strange piece of technique in a lot of ways because he doesn't he's not looking to leather it, and yet he manages to get a tremendous height and dip on it from a long way out, and it, it's just it's just a brilliant brilliant goal and it's 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 a goal that it's always nice when players that you are told or that you are sure are absolutely wonderful go and prove it and this was a goal that (laughs) really 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 did it was genuinely a goal that probably only a handful of players in the world at the time would have even tried and even fewer would have actually pulled off and he did in bright sunshine in a you know in a packed stadium brilliant absolutely brilliant oh, positionally was from the best place to shoot from on the arcade version of virtual striker 2 yes uh, <laughs> I'll go next, right? Because I'll, I'll, I'll come back and sort of mop up some of the ones we miss out as well. After you, yeah. Um, I'm having Stoichkov against Mexico, which came in the sixth minute of the second round game uh, that they eventually won on penalties. It was uh, a through ball with Bulgaria somehow in the sixth minute on the break, um, and Stoichkov got out to the left channel and took a, just a couple of touches as he outpaced the defender that came across to cover it. Um, there was a lot of finesse in that outpacing and outmuscling. There wasn't that much finesse in the finish because he absolutely blasted it. Left footed, top corner, near post. Absolutely no chance for the goalkeeper. Um, And on replays, it's made even better by the fact that there were a a couple of little bobbles in there. Firstly, while he was running. um, And secondly, just as he hit the shot as well. Um, So, in a way, part of the the difficulty of it was keeping it down. Um, And he nearly took the roof off the net. It was sodding marvellous. What you got, right? Uh, Ray Hudson against Italy, surprisingly. Um, it's it's a very Ireland goal for that time. That it um, it's a long ball hoofed up that uh, the Italians don't deal with particularly well. Franco Brazi tries to nod it down. Houghton nips in. There's a there's a shout for handball. I think uh, but it flicks off his shoulder and then. He doesn't even connect with it very well, but it's just my favourite goal. Like it, it, watching it back, it's not the sweetest connections, but it just sails tantalisingly an inch and a half above Paliuka's reach uh, and drifts into the back of the net, and it just uh, caused the most incredible noise around all of Ireland. Um, Houghton doesn't look entirely convinced that he meant it. An outrageous celebration, but it is just very much a. He must have caught a glance of where Paliuka was because otherwise it's a terrible decision to shoot and put it straight down the middle. But yeah, just uh, a lovely, lovely moment where um, not entirely sure I saw the game for the next kind of couple of minutes as you're just bouncing around with everybody. But yeah, it was 
it's good. I think I remember it better than it was because I've watched the video since, and it's um, not a particularly nice connection. In my head, he takes a touch, it sits up, and he um, kind of cushions it over him. But actually, it, it he there's probably handball. It bounces and then he scuffs it, but it just agonisingly beats the keeper, which is brilliant. <laughs> Paul McGrath did all right that night as well. Yes, very very, very good. good. Mention. Um, yeah, so. One of the goals that I've got on on the long list uh, is, I think, indicative of a lot of what happened at this World Cup, which saw a lot of little solo runs where you expect it. So when you're watching highlight reels of of great goals and someone goes on a long run or a big team goal, you expect the finish to be a bit sketchy sometimes because you can get away with it. Always they seem to still leather them into the top corner at the end of these runs. And the the goal that (laughs) brings that to life for me was Amakachi against Greece. Mm. Um who just finished off his lovely solo run with an absolute screamer in its own right. Um, Maradona against Greece, not bad. Um, and then, D- Dave, the two that I've got remaining, I reckon you can probably guess specifically why I would put them on a list of great goals. Firstly, Kanija against Nigeria, mm. which I've got basically because of Maradona's involvement. Quick yeah. free kick, cut yeah. into the top corner. Yeah. Um, and Baggio against Spain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was <laughs> Baggio was. It's you know the conversation I have with you about how I think Marco van Basten is criminally underrated and never talked about in terms of the greatest players to ever play the game. I am not yeah. saying Roberto Baggio is criminally underrated, but I do think he is underrated because without doubt he. He should be up there in that sacred few as the best to ever play the game, and he did it. He did it on. Uh, he did it in two World Cups: one, 1990, at home with enormous pressure on his shoulders, and he was outstanding in some games and scored some wonderful goals. And then he did it again. I mean, as I said, it was an absolute rescue job in that Nigeria game, and. Yeah, I mean, if you like football, you have to love Roberto Baggio. You have to. Yeah, and Signori's assist was an absolute peach as well. Mm. Uh, We'll move on to question five then. Uh, Dave, you can go first on this one because um, you're the only one of us for whom this isn't that World Cup. Uh, Mm. What's the one thing you'll never forget about USA 94? I would love to talk about legacies crowd sizes impact to the tournament emotional impact on a nation etc etc but we all know it's the goal nets they were absolutely massive (laughs) biggest goal nets of all time and I've talked about this for years on Twitter me and Danny Last actually bonded uh, the the friendship that has, has blossomed over time actually came from a conversation about goal nets and our love of goal nets and how the goal nets at, the, at USA 94 were just extraordinary. I mean, go back, have a look at them. You you could trawl for fish in them. Absolutely gigantic. And I'd love to say something more highbrow, maybe said the tactical impact of the 1994 World Cup, but no, it was the goal nets. Absolutely massive. Yeah, well, the, the ball that Maradona put in there had to come out by C-section. Oh, it was! It, 
they are so big though and uh, there's no earthly reason for them to be that big and they're that big and they're not even that tight in some games you've got like just a load of net on the floor it's just extraordinary extraordinary more of that i say more of that good ryan um a big shout out to permutations italy getting out of their group with well all four teams in the republic of ireland italy's group all finished on four points one win, one draw, one loss. Italy got through on account of scoring one more goal than Norway, and then went on to the final. Um, but that was just, you know, lovely permutation chat. Um, it was, as Chris mentioned, that World Cup for me. It was the the one I fell in love with, uh, sport. It was exciting being allowed to stay up late to watch football, um, and got to the point where my parents made agreements with me that they would record the later games and let me watch them the next morning because I was trying to stay up and past midnight and. They were having none of it, so I remember getting up to watch games stupidly early and then started pestering my grandparents to record one game and my parents would record the other when there was two on at the same time, so I didn't miss anything. It was just, um, yeah, running around with um, videotapes, I think, for all of that month. Um, and yeah, there was, looking back on it, there was a lot of firsts that kind of you don't really necessarily take for, for granted. Like it was the first time that there was three points for a win to kind of encourage that football. There was, um, uh, and the like sponsorship around kind of scoreboards and things, um, which started to appear, um, was always I think a little bit interesting. It was the Americans trying to Americanize it, um, and yeah, the the legacy that I think it kind of brought as well to MLS. That I know FIFA get a bit of a bad rep for uh, some of the things that they've done, and and even their decisions to try and take football to new frontiers, etc. Um, but the success of America since is almost a big plus for that, a big kind of tick, which is, you know, not the argument that I want to make in this situation, but actually kind of shows that they've, they've got the right idea. Mm. It is possible to read quite a lot about the commercial side of this World Cup and, and about the, the bidding for it. Mm. Um, and it, it, a lot of the story centres on a guy called Alec Rothenberg, who's a, a pretty fascinating figure in, in American football um, commercial history at least so it's, it's well worth having a look through that stuff um, but at nine years old I really didn't care about any of that stuff nope. um, and what this World Cup gave me um, along with very many less attacking players uh, Carlos Valderrama being one of them um, was a lot of big stars who were larger than life in the way that we were told they were going to be it's just ridiculous. When you look back on it, you know, can you imagine this summer getting a World Cup where players at the level of Romario, Baggio, Hadji, Brolin, Maradona, kind of, and Stoichkov all show up to the best of their abilities? Yeah. It would be incredible. And it, that's all I needed. You know, that was it. That was me hooked on football from that point. Mm. You know, what more could you possibly want than Romario firing on all cylinders and Hadji doing the same and Stoichkov mm. doing the same? It was it, stunning. It was a great uh, take it take it from me. It was a great sticker album. This one because it was <laughs> one of them that you that you look back on now, and nearly every player, uh, nearly every team has at least one player who you have been able to either you either loved at the time or you have retrospectively mm. spent some time on YouTube with. Mm. Put it that way. It's pretty much everyone, wasn't it? I think probably one of the forgotten teams is Saudi Arabia, and they scored an absolute belter as well at one point. Is that Saeed Al Aran? 
Yeah. The the where he just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs That's the one. and runs. That's the one. Um they repeated that more recently as well, didn't they? Mm. If I remember rightly. Doesn't matter. Um we'll leave it there and hopefully we'll be back as a, a four piece uh before too long, but uh we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. You can find us on uh Twitter and Facebook and you can visit footballfivespodcast.com for all the other gubbins. See you later. See you later. Bye.